Hi, and welcome back to OnPsych, the podcast of the Ontario Psychological Association. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Douglas. I'm a psychologist in uh, private practice in Barrie, Ontario, a former president of the Ontario Psychological Association. And kind of relevant to today's topic, I'm also on the uh, board of directors of uh, Badge of Life Canada, uh, which provides uh, support services to uh, uh, police officers and other first responders who are dealing with occupational stress injuries. And I'm w- here today with uh, President Mark Baxter, who's a uh, sergeant in the uh, Brampton, was it Mark? Brantford, Brantford Police Service. And uh, he's also uh, now uh, uh, taking on the duties of being president of the uh, uh, of the Police Association of Ontario, the PAO, and uh, now doing that full time during your tenure, and I'm I'm sure that's quite a uh, quite a challenge that you've taken on there, sir. Yeah, it's uh, certainly been a busy seven months since I was elected uh, in in early June, but uh, really enjoying the work and and uh, really really believe in um, you know the work that the PAO does. We really have an ability to to make an impact uh, on policing and. I'm really, really enjoying, you know, the last seven months and uh, looking forward to continuing to forge ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I know when I, I, when I was president, you know, the experience of, you know, being able to give back to the profession in that way and, and to advocate. Right. Yeah. Cause I know as a police officer, you're fairly restricted in what you're allowed to say. Right. You know, and Certainly. to be able to step up and be in that role of being able to advocate for the changes that you feel need to be made has to be in some ways kind of freeing, I would think. It is. It's, it's freeing. It's really, uh, it's really satisfying work. It's, you know, as you said, when you're, uh, you know, in our profession, you know, we're highly regulated by the police services act and all mm-hmm. sorts of oversight bodies. And yeah, we really are prohibited from speaking out, uh, on a, on a variety of issues. It's, it's one of the things that attracted me to association work and that really has attracted me to this work. Uh, is the the ability the advocacy and the ability yes. to advocate on behalf of you know sworn and civilian police members for for whatever the issue may be the ability to to advocate on their behalf and actually affect change and and affect policy and so um, really uh, really excited uh, about the future of policing I think we're at a really interesting time right now where you know we've got so many um, advances in technology. Um, we're dealing with staffing crises across the province, we're really across the country. Um, we're dealing with, you know, mental health. You know, everybody wants to talk about what police are doing to support um, people with mental health and addiction issues uh, in their communities. But really, yes. we really need to focus on, you know, from my perspective, we really need to put more focus on what we're doing to support our members uh, and their Absolutely. own mental health. Because uh, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a big issue as well. No, oh, it's a it's a huge, huge issue, isn't it? And and you know, and that's certainly why uh, you know I was so excited to have you uh, have you join us. Uh, you and I were actually quoted in the same newspaper article over the summer, and uh, you know, so you, you know, ooh, that's that's a guy I want to talk to. <laughs> you know, it's we're starting to you know. So just to explain you know to the audience uh, a little bit of the history here, it's a it's a bit of a a myth out there that PTSD was not. Uh, previously covered by WSIB. In fact, it always was, right? I used to see a number of police officers in the years before the presumptive legislation, uh, which came into effect in uh, April of 2016. But the difference that occurred was that there had to be 
an event. You had to be able to say, oh, that's the one that did it to me. That was the motor vehicle accident I attended. That was the crime scene. It happened on this date. And here's the incident report, you know, and, you know, the difference that happened in 2016 was the presumptive legislation, which freed up the uh, the requirement to have that single event. And instead you could be like, I've been on the force for 30 years, right? And I'm completely falling apart now. I, I'm, you know, I'm almost at the end of my career, you know, and I just can't quite make it over the finish line, right? And that really became, you know, at that time, the, the typical referral. Exactly. And that was really, really critical because as we know, you know, I, I, when I got hired in 2005, I would say even in 2005, we weren't doing a really good job of talking about operational stress injuries uh, all the way up until, you know, well into the early part of the, the 2000s or the, the 2010s. Uh, we, we weren't doing a good talk about, job of talking about operational stress injuries. And so you we would have members who have been exposed to all sorts of, of trauma over the course of their career and can't pinpoint one, ex- one ex- specific example. Exactly. And, you know, but their, you know, their cup is overflowing now and now they mm-hmm. need to get some assistance. And so they would, you know, try and go through the WSIB process. And like you said, unless they could point to one specific event and it's my, you know, from the members that I assisted locally in Brantford when I was the president pre, um, uh, pre-presumptive legislation, it was point to one event, but it had to be somewhat recent. You know, if your one yes. event was three years ago, you really had to go through a lot of hoops and that really oh, yeah. prohibited people from getting the treatment that they needed. Right. Yes, and absolutely. so that, that's a big thing that the presumptive legislation helped members with was, okay, now you've got this, this diagnosis and the intent is we can get you into treatment early, uh, mm-hmm. earlier, certainly. Uh, right. In some cases, yeah, some t- cases, yeah, it's, sometimes it, it still takes what I would say is too long. But there's lots of examples where, you know, members can get into treatment really quickly now and yes. um, start, yes. their, start their recovery. Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I, I agree. There are still, you know, some real challenges in terms of access, you know, yes. largely because, you know, uh, you know, I know um, a lot of psychologists, myself included, uh, are really quite overwhelmed with the number of uh, of uh, referrals coming in. Toronto is not too bad, I think. I think, you know, if you really need to find someone super quickly in Toronto, you're going to be okay. Out in the more outlying areas, um, it, it can still be a bit of a challenge, right? Because there aren't so many psychologists, in, in you know, frankly, in the non-university towns. If you look at where yeah. psychologists are, we tend to cluster in cities with big cities with universities is where you'll find a lot of psychologists. And it, it, It's know, interesting you say that because, down. you know, my example or my experience even in Brantford where, you know, we would have members that required a referral and certainly we had we had local psychologists but mm-hmm. you know we often would refer members to Guelph or to Waterloo yeah. you know which yeah. is an hour drive which is fine mm-hmm. but when i think about the gaps that still exist in some of our more rural communities yes. um you know we hear you know members having to drive a couple hours to to get That's some treatment right. i mean That's i right. suppose one of the good things that the pandemic has done is now i understand members are able to meet you know via zoom that's right. With 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 a doctor such as yourself, which which is great and really connects, helps connect, make the connection with our members in rural communities. Yes, it, 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 and I, I think we're going to see going forward. I mean, you know, like all of us, uh, certainly in, in in adult services, 
you know, uh, in, in clinical psychology, uh, we're able to quickly and easily adapt to uh, the digital uh, world. And, you know, I think initially, uh, you know, a lot of clients were sort of, um, you know, a little bit resistant, right? You know, they wanted to be in the room. Uh, and, and now it's sort of recognized, I, I, I was just telling you just before we started that, you know, uh, you know, having done a session, one session with somebody mm-hmm. wearing a mask, you know, face to face in the room, was like, I never want to do that again. It's so much better to, right. you know, to be, you know, able to see the facial expressions that, you know, that we get through the, uh, uh, you know, through the, uh, uh, the video. And of course I get to see myself as well, which is a, an enormous benefit because I'm cute as the Dickens, you know, I just like <laughs> mock myself all, all throughout the entire session, you know, the client's so much more boring, you know, but yeah, it, it, it really, I think it is going to be an advantage and, you know, we see, um, where we do see some ongoing limitation, I think, is in in the rural areas, is with internet speed I hear and that. telephone, right? Yeah, and yeah. and I think as well, it's a, it's a growing concern in some of our um, First Nations communities as well, having exactly. getting access to even getting access to it, internet at all. But yeah, um, you know, hopefully, you know, we're we're working to 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 close some of those gaps, and you know, yeah. I think, I, yeah, if a member has to drive somewhere so that they can hotspot their their phone from their car to you know the side right. of Tim Hortons or the public library. You know, hopefully they're able to to do yes. that to get those ac- get the access. Yes, exactly. And of course, it's all encrypted. Let's point that yeah, out. You know, <laughs> yes. you know, it's all it's, it's all secure. As, as, as secure as it can be, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and I always like to remind people. You know, all all the all the concern that we have about this. When was the last time you picked up your phone and wondered if it was being tapped? It's probably easier to do that, you know, than it is it is to uh, you know to to tap into some of these video sessions, you know. But uh, yeah, it, it's absolutely true. Obviously, we have to be super careful about that. Hey, on psych listeners, Katie here from Jane. I wanted to take a few seconds to say you're doing incredible work. Whether you're a receptionist, office manager, practitioner, or all of the above, we see your commitment to your clients. Jane was built to help you transform that commitment into a thriving business, all while making your day-to-day easier. You can head to jane.app forward slash mental health to read more and see if we can be a good fit for your practice. But yeah, so, you know, I, it was fun, you know, um, o- over the course of the, uh, uh, the presumptive legislation, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, we, we just had the auditor's report coming out, uh, you know, expressing concern. Uh, and I share this concern, mm-hmm. right, with a number of, of officers that are off. And one of the reasons I, I, I share that concern is that I realize that every officer that goes off means more stress being put on the officers that are left, Yep. Right. They're having to do more with fewer resources. And I, I wonder if you could speak to that. Like, how, how is how's that affecting the officers that are still on the job? Yeah. So that auditor's report obviously uh, is based on the Ontario Provincial Police. Um, but I would say is reflective of all of our communities and every of our, you know, all of our municipal police departments are facing the same challenges. We've mm-hmm. got, you know, we are now we're at a point where which is good. We're encouraging members to come forward with their own mental health yes. uh, struggles. We want yeah. people to come forward. Um, you know, Dr. Hire did that report on police suicide 
mm-hmm. that it released in 2019, right? Which, yeah. um, you know, I think there's been a lot of good steps that have been taken by, by a lot of people um, since that. And of course, one of them is let's encourage people to come forward. Let's work to break down the stigma and let people know that it's okay to not be okay. And it's okay exactly. to come forward and, and say that you need help. Now, what happens is as people come forward and, and for a variety of different reasons, sometimes uh, people are able to come forward with their own struggle and they are able to receive treatment and, and stay in the workplace. And, mm-hmm. and we know that there certainly are lots of those cases. Um, but often that's not, that's not the case. And members yeah. have to leave the workplace so that they can focus on their own health and, mm-hmm. and get healthy before they can come back to work because policing is a very unique job, right? We can't have um, someone who's suffering um, and who's, uh, who's really struggling out, you know, uh, armed working in our communities supposed to be helping other people when they're not okay themselves. Right. It's not Absolutely. a unique job where you can just kind of suck it up and go to, go to work. And I think, yes, as we know, that was the mentality for a long time. And that led us to some really, um, terrible content and horrific consequences. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. I'm, I'm always so, I'm always so keenly aware that, you know, any officer, has strapped to their hip, you know, the means with which to take their own life. Right. You know, and, and that decision can take two seconds, Yep. you know? And so we have to make sure that people are safe out there, right? We have to make sure that they're, they're in a condition where, you know, we're, we're confident in what they're going to be able to do. And I, and I think a lot of the, you know, what we see in the, in the media in terms of police misbehavior, Right is you know not always right, but it's mm-hmm. often attributable to some underlying issues, right? That have yes. probably come about through the the stresses of the of the workplace. And I don't mean to you know take responsibility <laughs> away because it's it's it, it it doesn't right, but we need to understand what are the what's the origin sometimes of you know you you hire that young kid who's you know gung ho and you know wants to go out there and do the right thing. And, you know, you end up with this officer who's breaking the law and, you know, how does that transform? Well, you got to look at the nature of the job and the workplace culture as well. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, the, the experiences they've had, the trauma that they've been exposed to, because, you know, and I, and I heard someone, someone said this to me on the phone yesterday and I got really angry. Um, They said, well, you know, you knew what you were signing up for um, when Mm. you became a police officer. And, um, you know, that, that's not, that's not accurate. You know, when yeah. I, when I became a police officer at, at 22 years old, I d- had no idea the types of traumatic experiences that I was yeah. going to be exposed to. Right. I didn't know that I was going to hold uh, a 17 year old boy in my hands who'd just been fatally stabbed and have him take yeah. his last breath while I'm holding him trying to save him. Like yeah. those are things that no one gets into any profession thinking that they're going to be able to prepare themselves for. And so, um, yes. So, you know, that, but that all works towards this idea that we have to continue to work hard to break down the stigma. Um, Absolutely. As, as, I, as I was saying before, so, you know, what we're seeing happening is, uh, and we've been advocating um, quite loudly over the last couple of months, we've made it um, a part of our priorities with the government is that we need more police resources. And when I say police resources, we need an investment in the hiring of police officers as well as civilian members. Um, mm-hmm. We're hearing all the time about staffing shortages, um, not just frontline, but in our um, in our comm centers, particularly when I, when we talk about mm-hmm. the, our civilian members, right? And so this is a result of 
since presumptive legislation came in, you know, we've got members that are um, seeking seeking treatment that are out of the workplace. It's leaving shifts um, short, whether it's a civilian um, in the civilian ranks or or frontline on the in the sworn side. And then what we've done over the last five or six years to fill those gaps when we've been short is we've scheduled overtime. And so we've had people come and work on their day off or stay late from their previous shift to fill that gap because they mm-hmm. were short. Well, after doing that for five or six years, people are burned out. People are yes. tired of not getting all their um, uh, not, not getting, getting their time off and people are getting burned out, which leads to more operational stress injuries, which leads exactly. to more injured members and more people out of the workplace. And so, you know, what we're strongly advocating for is we need an investment in, um, in, in, in police personnel, in police yes. resources so that we yeah. can backfill because, you know, for, I, I'm fortunate in the police department that I came from, um, the chief, um, had, reached an agreement with the police services board many years ago before presumptive that once a member was out of the workplace for two years, the chief was able to replace that member or, or hire someone. Uh, And when Mm -hmm. that member came back, they would just deal with the additional staffing through attrition. (laughs) It doesn't happen, but that doesn't happen. Yeah. Virtually anywhere else in the province. And so we are short staffed everywhere. We're short staffed on the front lines. Our support services are short staffed. Our, um, our, our, our comm centers by and large across the province are short staffed. And so yes. we're as more people continue to get burned out and, you know, acquire we burn out more people. Injuries, <laughs> yeah. We, we got to hire more people and we need exactly. an investment. And so one of the things we've been lobbying the government for is we, we want the government to make an investment um, and to come up with a grant program to, to hire more police personnel, um, which will hopefully alleviate some of that, that stress that's happening. Yeah. Cause it seems like, you know, we have to, you know, uh, plan for, you know, because what I would love to see, and I, I, I think, you know, uh, you know, from my perspective on the presumptive legislation and the way things were before, right, is that you had a culture that said, suck it up and keep going. You had systems that were not highly responsive to the needs. And so there was a massive backlog of pent up demand. And so 2016 comes along and not surprisingly, you know, there's pent up demand being released. A lot of people going off, right? Yep. And what I'd love to see, instead of allowing that demand to become pent up, is for officers uh, and, and all first responders. I'm saying officers because I'm talking to a cop, but I mean, right. you know, really, it applies to all of them, obviously. <laughs> yes. But uh, to take um, multiple but shorter periods of disability throughout the career, right? right. You know, so, you know, you have that bad call, you step back, you regroup, right? And, you know, you, you get back in relatively quickly, right? And I, because I believe that, you know, dealing with trauma is actually a bit of a skill set, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can provide the information, we can provide the resiliency training and this kind of a thing, you know, up front, but it's kind of like learning how to drive a car from a, from the manual, right? right. You know, it's, you, you got to get behind the wheel and, and really drive it, you know, and, and in order to understand how you're going to handle, you know, those reminders and the anxiety and the, the difficulty sleeping and, you know, and all this kind of a thing. It's an actual skill set that can be taught. And it needs to be taught earlier in the career when you've got that lived experience, right? 
we also need police chiefs to create an environment where it's okay for people earlier in their career to have that awful call yes and not be expected that they're going to do their notes and go 10 8 and go respond to the next call that's right um, that's right and look there are some police departments although very few but there are some in the province that are seem to be you know from the association leaders i talk to seem to be getting it right right we've got yeah. a bit we've got some police departments that are um, really care about their their members well-being and it trickles down from the top uh, you know from the chief and deputy chief level senior command level all the way down to the frontline supervisors because mm-hmm. to me that's really critical we we can have police leadership saying all of the right things but mm-hmm. if the staff sergeant or the sergeant that's in charge of that frontline platoon, if they're not saying and doing the right things, members aren't going to come forward. If right. they are seen to be um, critical of members that are off, or if they are seen to be of a generation where, oh, well, you should suck it up. It doesn't matter yeah. what programs the senior command put in place. Um, that's right. There's got to be buy-in at all, at all ranks. And uh, look, I'll, I'll be the first to say there are some police departments that are getting it right. They generally yes. they generally tend to be the largers, but mm-hmm. there are some smaller and mid-sized associations or police services as well that are getting mm-hmm. it right and that are mm-hmm. really um, really in tune to you know the needs of of their members when they are responding to these types of calls. But at the same time, we've got some large police associations, very well resourced police services yeah. that are that are dropping the ball all over the place. Yeah. Um, yeah. That you know we gotta we've got we've got to work we got a lot of work to do still, and we've got some that are actively kind of starting to work against the the destigmatization, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, you know, we we we've seen that happen. You know, we've seen you know uh, you know organizations coming forward and saying you know that the problem basically with the presumptive legislation isn't that we have so many injured officers, but rather that they have such easy access to it, right? And the methods that, you know, uh, oh, they're being too well paid, so they're not incentivized to return, which, by mm-hmm. the way, I, I just think is is an obscenity because, you know, I, I work with these police officers. I do not see, uh, I, I, you know, uh, I'll be honest, it's not that I would never say that I've seen someone I thought, okay, you know, but mm-hmm. um, the vast majority would love nothing more than to get back. Right. Right. Because being a cop is, you know, I, when we're talking about in the, poli- the police officer, being a cop is their identity. Right. Yes. It's, it's, it's an identity. It's 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 who you are. It's it's a calling that brings you yep. to this. And yep. my experience as well um, is with with members that are that are struggling is that no one is looking for a free ride. People no. are looking to get themselves healthy. Yes, exactly. And you know where I see the the exception to that, you know, the ones who are are very hesitant to return. It's really it's about the relationship with the employer, right? right. You know, so you, you you get these issues of, you know, the the embittered employee, right? The, you know, the one who's uh, experienced stigma and expects to return to an environment where you know they expect to be shamed for having been off work. And that becomes such a significant problem, you know, and, and that's a real barrier to return. So the more stigma 
and uh, that you create in the workplace for having going, you know, having to go off, right? The more bitterness you create in the worker, which literally impedes healing, right? And the, the longer the claim takes as a result, it's, it's actually counterproductive, you know, some of these, this messaging that we've been hearing. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, you know, we get, you know, I, I was in a conversation recently with a chief who rhymed off a dozen different programs that they had in place. Mm-hmm. But it was obvious to me that we're just filling checkboxes. Yes. And we're not creating an environment where it's okay to take advantage of these resources, knowing yeah. that taking advantage of these resources may take you away from the workplace for a period of time until you can get healthy and then you can reintegrate back. Um, it it be, still becomes a bit of a bear. I actually, I heard once of a, uh, a fire captain, uh, you know, coming into the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the fire house there and, you know, to, to debrief, right after a, a, a nasty call and saying, well, I suppose I have to do this debriefing BS now. You right. know, if that's the message, it ain't going to work. <laughs> you know? No. And that just further adds to the stigma because if there's someone there, if someone in that firehouse is struggling, now they're not going to, yep. and, and their chief could be the, the number one chief out there saying we support our members. If we yep. want them to get help, if they have to leave the workplace, we'll deal with that. But yes. when, when that fire captain says makes that comment, anybody in that room not coming forward. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's the one that you you know you're dealing with. It's your own staff sergeant. It's your own platoon leader. You know that it's the ones you're dealing with that you know uh, have such an impact. Essentially, the middle management, right? right. Yep. And you know it's so important to get this message out there, you know, uh, to them. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's where we're going to see the I mean, what happens too. I think there's a there's a cultural shift which is happening. Right. You know, uh, you know, kids who are 20 years old today, you know, in their early 20s, late teens. Right. They've grown up in an era where mental health is really quite effectively destigmatized, at least to the point where they're willing to talk about it. Yep. And those kids are going to become the police officers of today and tomorrow, right? They're going to rise to the ranks and they're, they're going to bring that attitude of destigmatization along with them and an attitude that says, hey, you know, uh, I, 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 I've got this injury here now. I need these support services right away. You know, I saw that happening in the military, mm-hmm. right? Where it went from, you know, I'm going to suck it up and then I'm going to suffer with alcoholism for 10 years and then get booted out of the military because I've never acknowledged the, you know, the issues I'm dealing with to, you know, younger military members, you know, coming off the plane, boots on the tarmac in Canada and saying, okay, where's my psychologist? Because I need, I need to heal from that stuff. Right. And I, I think we're going to I think we're seeing that already. I think we're mm-hmm. already seeing some, you know, uh, the next generation of officers, maybe over the exactly. last four or five years that have been yep. hired and that are coming forward and, and um, saying what you're saying, right? Like I was just, I was just at this call and it was really bad. I need to go talk to somebody. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And the problem of course, is that the, the, those middle managers, they're mm-hmm. either going to hear that and go, good for you. That's exactly what we need. We're here for you a hundred percent or, they're going to be, you're not cut out for this job, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. There's something wrong with you, you know, if you're not able to suck it up, right? 
And the thing about sucking it up that strikes me too is that it, it's so damned effective. It's really a very effective strategy. It'll work for you. It'll work for a decade, a decade and a half, two decades. You're going to be able to suck it up no problem at all. And then you'll never be able to suck it up again one day, right? Yep. You're going to wear out that that defensive strategy and that'll be it, right? Like, That's what I tend to see. And what you say is so true because – when we think about, like when I think about some of the long-term claims, right? So members that have been out of the workplace for an extended period of time, mm-hmm. it's because they sucked it up for so many exactly. years, right? And exactly. this is the thing, like we've got to get people to understand that if we tell you to suck it up for 10 or 15 years, when you come forward, like you, you're going to be a long time healing. That's right. You're going to be away from the workplace for a long time rather than not having that mentality. And I, you know, in the, when you're exposed to something, come forward and say, I need to go talk to somebody. I need to deal with, talk to see somebody now. And, and those regular check-ins or, you know, seeing someone as you've been exposed to these experiences and, you know, you're helping build up your own toolkit and your own, it helps you build up your own resilience. Exactly. And then I think over a generation, we're, we hopefully will not still see these long-term um, absences, which is at the end of the day, the long-term absences are reflective of long-term illness. And that's what we yes. want to get away from. We want people to be healthy and not unhealthy for a long term, which then the consequences that they're out of the workplace. But what actually matters is they're not healthy for a long period of time. We got to get people healthy. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, and like I say, you, you know, if we're able to do that earlier in the career and then have multiple periods where, you know, we sort of refresh that, right? right? You know, that is so much better than burning somebody out and then wondering why they're not getting back to work within six months, right? Yeah. yeah and one of the things that we've really been pushing from the associations or to this to out to the associations over the last number of years at the PAO is that um, we you know, we've really been encouraging associations when they go to the bargaining table to really enhance their, um, their psychological coverage. Yes. Yes. And and to the point now we've got many police associations with unlimited, Mm -hmm. uh, some with, you know, more than $10,000 a year coverage. Yes. We're still lacking. We're still lagging, um, in a lot of areas and in some places it's no fault of the association. They've tried to bargain in really good faith, but the employer's not prepared to give them more than the thousand or two thousand dollars. But what yes. we're really yeah, one of the things that we're really hoping over certainly over the course of my term is to really educate our association leaders and the boards to say these benefits are really important because when we've got this member that just need you know has been exposed to a couple of calls in a row and just wants yes. to go talk to somebody, but they don't want to go through the whole thing. They don't necessarily want to do the whole thing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Then they can just go and they've got yeah. the benefits that are going to get yeah. them someone that they can go talk to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, know, you don't have to be off work to access WSIB. Right. You know, it's an option, yep. right? You can, you know, either go the WSIB option or you could go through the extended health benefits. And if, if you've got adequate coverage, right? then you can get that help. And if you need to go off, okay, then we can make it WSIB, right? And, yeah, and yeah. I think what's also really important about having good extended health benefits so that members can mm-hmm. go is they don't have to go to their employer. Exactly. Right? If They, if they, they keep it to have, themselves. Yeah, if they don't yes. have good benefits, 
they and they have to go through WSIB in order to get the the, the sessions covered. Mm-hmm. Uh, the employer is going to know about it. Yes, and we we know as well that that's a big barrier for a lot of people. So if they've got the access, um, and yeah. one of the things one of the things that the PAO um, that we've done that I'm really proud of over the last twelve months is we've built this internal repository um, of psychologists uh, mm-hmm. across the province that have experience mm-hmm. dealing with police officers. Yes. Exactly. And so you know, you know, members can can get a hold of their association, and and the associations, you know, push this out to their membership. If you if you need to go talk to someone, come to us. If you don't want to go to the mm-hmm. employer, and they can connect them with with someone. And of course, as we said at the start, the beauty of uh, of Zoom is they can look at the list, and it could be somebody from a completely different community that they can yes. perhaps get connected with because they've heard from this association or that association that you know this person. Uh, is a real expert or is, is really has a lot of experience in, in exactly police officers and members that have been exposed to the type of trauma that we're exposed yes to. yes exactly exactly because it, it, it does it is really helpful you know to have you know that 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 cultural awareness right you know and and you know to you know to be able to um you know it, it, to some degree, it's just like learn how to track the acronyms. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. What is it? That guy said ten eight a few minutes ago. We, yeah, <laughs> we love to talk uh, talk using our acronyms, don't we? That's right. That's and our right. call signs. And that's just you know it's, it, you learn it over time, but you also learn you know something you know. I, I think one of the essential skills. I always, I always like uh, to say you know yeah, as, as the therapist, right. Go and watch Monty Python's Meaning of Life, right? If you can laugh at that scene, right, you're probably going to be able to tolerate hearing the stories you're going to hear. Because the last thing you want as a client, you know, when you're telling your stories is for your therapist to communicate, I can't handle that, right? That's an important thing. You know, we as the therapist have to be able to, you know, to handle reasonably. Uh, I'm not saying you can't be a human being in the room. Right. You know, I mean, you know, some of the stories that, you know, we hear both the therapist and the client are going to be crying and that's okay, Mm -hmm. Right. That's okay. But if the message coming from the therapist is you're overwhelming me, that's a problem. Right. Yeah. You've got to have that 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 space to hold that. Yeah, I agree. And and I fielded that exact call from when I was a local president uh, Mm. from a member who was, you know, referred uh, by the employer and was like my therapist that the police service told me to go to just said that uh, they were overwhelmed and that they can't help me. Yeah. I'm like, okay, well, yeah. it's time for yeah. us to, you know, this was several years ago. We, we've made yes. a lot of advancements then. Then this was a long yes. time ago, probably five years yeah. ago. But, you know, I was like, okay, well then, you know, now that really highlights the importance of making sure we've got someone that's got the, got the, got that experience and, and understands yeah. the, the culture. The other thing I, I, I sometimes see too is the uh, the employee assistance programs, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you get these these programs that are, you know, you get six sessions with a mental health professional, right? And they're they're usually quite time limited, and um, they're great, you know, for the problems of living, right? Mm-hmm. You know, gee, I'm getting stressed by my finances, my marriage isn't going so well, I need some help with parenting. Right. Yep. These are not where you want to be going to deal with, you know, significant trauma because significant trauma cannot be dealt with in six sessions and it can't be diagnosed by someone who can't diagnose. 
right? You have to be able to be seen by someone who's going to be able to make that diagnosis, you know, if it's going to have to be that time away from work and be able to, you know, to work with that. And and another important point too, I think, is that the healing properties of work, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's this, this myth out there that, you know, um, you know, the psychologist always wants to see that person off work. And that is absolutely not true. We love, number one, hey, my ego is on the line here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get an officer back to work. I That is like, wow, look, that is that is exactly why I'm doing this job, right? Yeah. I want to see that person get back to work. You know, and if I'm saying that person can't work, it's because that's exactly what I believe, mm-hmm. right? And you know, I think another piece of the the stigma as well is the idea that it's really easy, right? You know, you right. go to the psychologist, you say I've got PTSD. The psychologist says okay and signs you off. That is not the case. We're going to do a careful evaluation. You know, we're going to do a careful assessment, and 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 we don't want to be taken for a ride either, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. You know, so you know, you know, because one of the one of the messages you know that we were hearing this summer, you know was you know uh it's an interesting interesting thing to raise like the idea that it's rebuttable remember that phrase right you know the the presumptive legislation is rebuttable and we should have quick and easy access to rebutting so what that means basically is you know what the presumptive legislation says is that you know we're going to presume that an officer diagnosed only with ptsd which We'll get back to that in a minute because <laughs> I think that's mm-hmm. problematic. Mm-hmm. But a, diagnose, a diagnosis of PTSD is going to be presumed to be work-related unless there's compelling evidence to the contrary. Okay, so what you know the you know the, the this association was saying was well we need to be able to quickly rebut every assessment that comes through basically. In order to try to, you know, to build that case, we have to have the right to our second opinion as rapidly as possible so that, you know, in those cases where it's not work related, we'll be able to say, oh, goody, you know, this one is not work related. You know, so this person either has to come back to work or, you know, they'll have to be on LTD, but they're not going to be a WSIB claim. And the problem with that, right, is Again, look at the relationship between the employer and the worker, right? You know, you're you're telling the worker, I don't trust you. You're telling the workers, you know, treating treating professionals, we don't trust you. Mm-hmm. And that engenders more embitteredness in the worker as well, right? Yeah. And you know, you're really doing tremendous damage. Every single time I've seen a claim, um, you know, where they start to challenge the claim. Right. The worker or the employer has the right to challenge a claim and they'll say, well, the first step of that is we want to see the medical brief. We want to see all the medical records that WSIB has. And when that's a a a a psychological claim, that's a lot of really intensely personal information your employer is about to go on a fishing trip with. Yeah. Right. And of of course, you know, uh, you know. Officers have lives. They have personal lives. And it's our job as a psychologist to understand how those personal lives intersect with the workplace, right? You know, you might have had losses in childhood that are being reignited by the work. 
And that does not mean it's not work related, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, everyone's life is triggered by the work. It's our job to understand how your specific life is, yep. right? You know, and that's just part of the, the nature of the work. And that's very, very different from saying, you know, this person was sick, you know, before they became a police officer, yeah. right? Which would really beg the question, what the heck were you doing hiring that person? You know? Yeah. And like one of the problems also with all of that is that like I don't get what the employers, you know, are trying to get at mm -hmm. in that, right? Like to say, oh, this person's trauma, oh, it happened before. You know, we want to be able to basically hold some type of a hearing where this sick and injured member is right. going to have to probably provide evidence and they're all of their confidential medical information is going to be out there to show that it's a work related injury and not something right. that happened before work. Because like for me, what's the end game for the employer? Like, do you want this sick and this injured worker to come back to work? Yeah. Do you like, are you hoping that you can nope, not pay them and put them on LTD and hope that they qualify? Like, I don't, that, you know, that line of thinking create for adds to the stigma and prevents it, people from coming forward. Absolutely. And if, you know, luckily yeah. that none of that's been acted on, but if it was, you're going to have more, you would have more injured and sick officers that will not come forward. Yeah. I mean, and, to be fair, you know, I've, I've actually seen, I think the, um, the opposite starting to occur where, right. you know, initially I think we saw more, uh, cases where, you know, the, the, the you know, the service wanted to, um, you know, to fight back or was questioning the claim. And I think they fairly quickly learned it's not worth it. Yeah. You're not going to win number one. Right. Uh, you know, because this is, what we're talking about here is a principle called the thin skull rule, right. In disability law, if you and I are playing catch, right. And I throw badly, which would be very easily predictable. And I strike <laughs> somebody in the head, right. And most people, that ball would bounce off and they'd swear at me and go on with their day. My bad luck, I've struck somebody with a congenitally thin skull, right? And I cause a fractured skull and a brain injury, okay? Am I responsible for that? Yes, I am. Mm -hmm. That person was absolutely fine as they were walking down the street. They were injured after my action. Ergo, I'm responsible for that. If they had a pre-existing brain injury, right? And I'd make that throw and I make it worse. Am I responsible for that? Yes, I am. Yep. Right. This is the thin skull doctrine. Right. Mm -hmm. And what it says basically is, you know, if someone did have a pre-existing issue, you know, okay, <laughs> what's your point? You know, yeah. the work is still going to interact with that. Right. You know, if you had, you know, if, you know, if you had a, a, a difficult childhood and then you're, you know, being called upon to deal with, you know, domestic violence, right, that's going to intersect with that personal history and might make you have a particularly strong reaction to that type of call. That's still thin skull, mm -hmm. right? That's still the thin skull rule. So, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense you know, to try to uh, fight against that stuff. Right. Unless of course, what you're trying to do is put a chill on people making the claim in the first place. And then when the mem then it also makes it, and I may get the word wrong, but then you've got the, um, the emotional injury that comes with that. And I don't know if, that, yep. if I've got the right term, but where now we've got, you know, so when we get the member healthy, 
I yeah. want to reintegrate them back into the work. They're saying, huh, I mean, you want me to go back to this employer that thought I was lying to them, that thought that I wasn't injured, thought that my injury wasn't real. Now I'm supposed to go back to work for them. And that creates yeah. you know, more challenges that and really are completely avoidable. The word you're looking for is sanctuary trauma. Sanctuary trauma. That's the word. Yes. That's right. Right. And, and, yeah. and time and time again, you know, I'll, I'll hear from, from officers and from first responders or really any workers, doesn't matter what kind, that, you know, the original event, the original injury is bad. The sanctuary trauma of trying to deal with the, you know, the unfeeling system of, of you, know, um, you know, the stigma and this kind of a thing, that's actually worse. And it's harder to overcome, right? And it, yeah, it's it's absolutely it's absolutely accurate. It is a very very difficult thing to overcome. Yeah. You know, I, I I try to counsel people, to, you know, to to let go, to practice forgiveness, you know, to try to be as easygoing about it as you can, and you know, all all of those words kind of sound a little hollow. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, I'm the first to admit it. It's like. Yeah, it's all I got. Sorry. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's you know I think what we need to do to prevent sanctuary trauma is to fight stigma and to provide support, right? And have truly supportive workplaces that really do have your back, right? And and that's the way to you know to reduce that and and systems and to have systems that have your back. And that was the beauty of the presumptive legislation, right? It was saying, you know what? We are now going to have your back. And the pushback that we're seeing, right, is is a little sad, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Yeah, my, you know, lots of work to do. It, it's, um, you know, at the PAO, we are, we've got a very, very um, strong commitment towards mm-hmm. member mental health and, and dealing with and trying to navigate through some of these challenges um, that are happening in our workplaces. We've got, um, we've done a lot of work. Uh, in this area over the last couple of, couple of years, we've sort of, we've coined the term, uh, everyone needs backup. Um, yes. and we've, we've got an everyone needs backup campaign. It's posted on our website at PAO.ca where, um, we've got police officers and civilian members providing real life testimonials of their own struggles and their own challenges. And we, we do that. And when we, we have ran a campaign last year about it and it continues to be ongoing where, because we want to get the message out there to encourage people you know to work to break down the stigma and encourage people and let them know that it's okay not to be okay and um very uh you know we're going to be inviting um uh, right now everyone that's involved in that that campaign all the members from the different police departments that have um put in testimonials are all members of our local um you know they're of our lo- the local ranks of the associations that we cover right which is typically staff sergeant and below doesn't involve senior officers or senior command and we're going to be reaching out to those associations to say you know to invite them if they've got members within their senior the senior ranks of their organizations um, across the province to say hey listen if you're interested if you've got a got a member in the senior ranks that's interested in sharing their journey you know we'd like to include you in the work that we're doing um, yes around everyone needs backup because i think that's um, I think that's really important as well. I think you know we we have senior leaders uh, across the province that have experienced this type of trauma, but no one's mm-hmm. no one's really talking about it. And the next step for us is we want to encourage senior leaders to say, just as our rank and file members are coming forward and telling yep. their stories and talking about their journey, and it's okay. We want to encourage the senior members in this amongst the senior ranks of our police departments in this province to come forward and say, you know, wh- where they're comfortable. 
I, this has been my experience, this is my journey, because we think that that will further um, help to encourage people to come forward and, and break down the stigma. If, if, if the willingness to deal with PTSD were a virus, which is not a great example, but you know, it's what I'm going with at the moment, but <laughs> <laughs> patient zero in Canada would probably be Romeo Dallaire, who came mm-hmm. forward and said, I'm struggling, right? And, you know, be, you know, became the public face of PTSD in the military, which allowed the military to start to adjust and, and, and you know, to, and to start to recognize that they had to deal with this much, much more effectively, which led the first responders to doing the same thing. Right. right. And, you know, it's it, it's it, it all sort of, you know, I can trace my my career in a sense back to you know, shake hands with the devil, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, Romeo Dallaire being willing to come out. And I think that what you've hit on is so important there when someone, you know, if I have the idea that someone with PTSD is someone I should be looking down upon as being weak. And I look at my leader and say, well, that's someone who's strong and who I respect. And that person says, I've got PTSD. I've now got this cognitive dissonance, Right. Is that person weak and someone to be disrespected? Or does that mean I have to change my attitude around these issues of mental health? Exactly. And I love the fact that frequently that's the solution we come to. You know, I follow that person. I love that person. I support that person. Stigma has to go. Yep. And that's exactly what we need. You're absolutely right. Mark, thank you so much for joining me. It was such a great pleasure to uh, to meet you, and I look forward to to working with you on these initiatives down the road. Yeah, Dr. Douglas, thanks uh, again for the invitation. I know we we tried a couple of times to make this work. I'm really excited that uh, had the opportunity to get on get on here today. And uh, same, we're looking forward to continuing to work with you and um, you know the work work that you're doing uh, to support our members. I uh, want to thank you for that. Uh, really, Thank you. it's important work. It's very much needed, and we really appreciate uh, the work that you're doing to support our members. Thanks for thanks for having me today. Hey there, this is Katie from Jane. Thanks for letting our team be a part of your listening experience over these past few months. We're proud to be sponsors of the Ontario Psychological Association and the OnPsych Podcast. If you're new to Jane, let me tell you a bit about us. Jane is complete practice management software that can help you navigate your day-to-day with ease and flexibility. This means simple scheduling, streamlined billing, intuitive charting, and so much more. We'd love to meet you and hear your story. Our team is only a phone call or email away, and you can find us over at jane.app forward slash mental health. We look forward to hearing from you. You have been listening to OnPsych, presented by the Ontario Psychological Association. Be sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Mm-hmm.